Hi, I'm Marta from Incision UK, and this is another episode of In Conversation With. Our theme for this month is urology, and today I have Mr. Alistair Lamb, who is currently a consultant urologist working at the Churchill Hospital in Oxford. Please feel free to look at our speaker's bio to find out more about Mr. Lamb. Without further ado, hi, Mr. Lamb. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Why don't we start with a general introduction on your current roles in hospital and your day-to-day -day life? Thanks. Yeah. Hi, Marta. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so, yes, I am a prostate surgeon. I'm a urologist, but being as I, I seeing as I work in a specialized center, um, as is often the case, I focus very much on one particular aspect of urology, which in my case is specialist prostate cancer work. Um, but I also am a clinician scientist, and so my job is actually half and half. Um, and I think you're going to ask me some questions in a moment about research, <laughs> but I'll, I won't say any more at this point. Sure. Um, so what kind of, what's the day-to-day -day life of a urology surgeon? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. So why don't I tell you what I do? And then if you sure. have some questions about what a more general urologist might do, I can also give some thoughts about that. Um, as far as the day-to-day -day life, my days vary quite a lot, but what I might just do is give you a, a sort of typical week for me, because I yeah. think that is probably a more representative example of, of, of what my job looks like. As I mentioned, I do half and half research and surgery. And so typically for me, a Monday is an all day operating list. And basically I just do two operations. Mm -hmm. I cut out prostates using a Da Vinci robot. In fact, Marta, you may even have hung out with us in theatre for a day when you were yes, I did. I was very lucky. Yeah. Student attachment with us, which is when we first met, which was hopefully good fun. Um, but yeah, so I spend Mondays doing an operating list and basically doing robotic prostatectomies, and where there where time permits, also doing specialist prostate diagnostic work, usually doing transperineal biopsies. Those being the the two operations that I do. Tuesdays uh, is another clinical day for me, Tuesday mornings. I do a specialist prostate diagnostics list, which we call LATP, local anesthetic transperineal biopsy, a service that we introduced in Oxford. I think we're probably the second or third center in the country to introduce this back in 2018, uh, when it came over from the East Coast of the States via Guy's Hospital in London, uh, who trained us. Uh, and that's great. That basically allows us to do what used to be a general anesthetic procedure uh, in the operating theatre using up lots of resource, lots of time with the risk of a GA, but now we can do under local anaesthetic mm -hmm. uh, in clinic, just in our standard um, trust biopsy, transrectal biopsy room uh, next, to, next to our clinic rooms. Um, uh, and then Tuesday afternoon is a standard outpatient clinic. Um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this, but you may have heard of the sort of the joke, the difference between physicians and surgeons. And it's not one that I mean in order to make fun, simply to outline what we do. Uh -huh. um, so physicians concentrate largely on the diagnostic process yeah. and then the, the treatment is typically a little more straightforward. Uh -huh. um, as surgeons, um, we concentrate more on the treatment and the diagnostic process simply serves that. Mm -hmm. um, and the diagnostic process is often a bit more straightforward in surgery. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, as surgeons, we still have to undergo, um, we still have to get involved in the diagnostic process and we have to do clinics. Mm -hmm. um, and we wouldn't expect to have anybody on our operating list unless we do clinics. And it's a really important part of what we do. And I love my Tuesday afternoon specialist prostate cancer clinic. It's where I get to meet my patients for the first time, find out what makes them tick, 
meet their families, although that's been a bit harder during COVID. Of course. Um, I try always to meet people face to face when they come in for that sort of first discussion. They've been diagnosed with prostate cancer usually by that point. And then I'm talking through treatment options with them, obviously specifically talking them through what surgery will involve, but also giving them a flavor of the other treatment options. And then often they'll then go off and speak to other specialists, radiation oncologists, mm -hmm. potentially medical oncologists if they have metastatic disease. Um, or perhaps if they're going for active surveillance, then they might instead be managed by our nurse team. So mm -hmm. there's lots of variety in, in the different members of the team they'll meet, but I very much enjoy being part of that, um, as well as everything we do on, on, on a surgical front. Mm -hmm. And those are basically my two clinical days. The rest of the week, I do research. <laughs> okay. And I know that's one of your questions coming up. So do you want me to carry on or do you want to ask me a different um, question? Well, no, yeah, let, let's, let's stop there then. Um, so just before we move on to the, your research interest, so what was your journey through kind of medical school and why did you choose urology as your specialty? Yeah, thanks for asking that, that question. And I, I understand totally the reason for asking. Of course, it's important to think about the steps along the way that yeah. um, mean that we, we end up in particular specialties because I imagine that will be a point that people who are listening to this might be able then to relate to. Mm. Um, so I think as is often the case, I made the decision reasonably early on that I wanted to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, generally people make the decision, don't they, between hospital medicine and, and yeah. GP and then within hospital medicine between surgery and, and being a physician. And, and I probably made that in my, my first or second clinical year. Like you, I was an mm. undergraduate student at Oxford, but interestingly, I moved to Edinburgh for my clinical studies. Okay. Um, so probably my sort of end of my first year in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. so my, my fourth year of training. Um, and, and I suppose then it was a case of, you know, once you've decided you want to do surgery, you don't have to decide particularly quickly, but usually then it's sort of soft tissue surgery or, or, or bones and mm. or bits, bones and bits, um, <laughs> that bits being sort of ENT and ophthalmology and, and that kind of thing. So I wanted to be a soft tissue surgeon and I love general surgery. And I did, I actually did quite a bit of training in general surgery, but, but I knew I wanted to be a urologist from my final year as a medical student in Edinburgh. And, and I think it's often the case, isn't it? And that was because I did a, an attachment in urology and yeah. I loved it and I met some great people um, and that rubbed off on me. I saw that they were doing really interesting surgery and actually urology is probably, you know, give or take with vascular, if you count vascular as a new specialty, the, the youngest specialty in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in surgery, having sort of become an sort of uh, offshoot of, of general surgery back in the 60s and 70s. Mm. And I think being a young specialty, it's allowed us to really be at the forefront, the cutting edge of, of uh, technology. Okay. And it's therefore no surprise perhaps that you know, robotics, what I do, has been quite a big part of urology mm. um, since the sort of early days of robotics in the late 90s, early noughties. Um, uh, but actually robotics very much play second fiddle in urology to endoscopic urology, which is really where the sort of fascination with technology came in, in mm. urology. Um, uh, and for me as well, that was something that I saw early on, both as a student and, and through my training. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I was mentioning wasn't I, so I love general surgery and I did quite a bit of general surgery in my basic surgical training, which I did also in Edinburgh. Um, but to be blunt, uh, and uh, yeah, people will have, their own reasons for making decisions. You know, I, I did notice that my, you know, these guys are hugely respected. The sort of trainers uh, that were training me in general surgery, often some quite senior consultants were still having to get out of bed at night to come and do laparotomies 
because yeah. it's big surgery and that's what makes it so interesting of course but i you have to ask yourself the question do you still want to be doing that when you're in your sort of 50s and um and i wasn't certain that i did want to <laughs> be doing that in my 50s and, and so the wonderful thing about urology is it has all that technology it has big abdominal soft tissue surgery but by and large very few emergencies and so we tend as urologists to be able to go to bed and, and stay in bed at night yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> which you know is not is not trivial Mm -hmm. Is that enough as far as yes, my decision making? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, okay, so then heading back to your, towards your research, since that's such a significant part of your work. So what mm. exactly are your research interests? Yeah, um, right. So, so prostate cancer and really quite basic science underpinning prostate cancer are my research interests. Okay. Um, would you like me to just briefly say how I yeah. got into that? Yeah, 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 please. Yeah, okay. So it's similar again to, to the sort of story about my specialty decision-making. It all comes down to people, doesn't it? And mm. you know, I, think, I think that's right. We get inspired by people who we admire and see that they're doing interesting stuff, doing it well, and, and perhaps are attracted by that. And that was the case for me. Um, I did a bit of clinical research in Edinburgh during my basic surgical training. Mm -hmm. um, felt that I wanted, mainly for family reasons, actually, my wife uh, at that point uh, felt that we'd perhaps spent enough time in Edinburgh and, <laughs> and it was a good time to move south. And okay. um, so I looked at options and um, Cambridge was somewhere that I was very sort of interested in and, and noticed an, an academic post being advertised there. Mm -hmm. um, saw the head of department there, an amazing guy called David Neal, do a talk at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh and, you know, went and said hi, as you do, one thing led mm. to another, I was invited down to visit and then to interview. And so I got an academic clinical fellowship, ACF post that okay. I'm sure you and, and others on, who are listening to this will now be aware of. It's they're, they're, you know, reasonably well known now at the time, that was back in 2007. I think I was the first ACF appointed to a surgical ACF, at least in, okay. in the UK, along with two others, wow. because David Newell was on the sort of Walport committee that made up these things. Mm. So, so I was very fortunate. And for those who are interested in research, whether it's basic science like what I do, or or really good clinical research, you know, trials, um, really well, you know, methodologically robust clinical research should really consider doing the, what I think we still call the, the Walport academic training pathway, which starts, of mm -hmm. course, with academic foundation posts, ACFs, uh, sorry, AFYs, yeah. and yeah. then ACS after that. And then, of course, uh, post-PhD, there are these academic clinical lecturer posts. And the, the sort of idea with these is that they give you the space um, because they're fully funded and the expectation of doing you know, a period of full-time research through a PhD, but also um, with protected time during clinical training to mm. keep that research going both before and after a PhD to really decide, is this something for you? Do you want to, um, did I want to um, become a career uh, research surgeon or research scientist alongside being a clinician? Mm. And I, I, I was you know, hugely grateful for that sort of, the time invested and, and there's no compulsion if you decide it's not for you of course you can you can go back to being a full-time clinician but but i i loved it um david neal was very much running a sort of basic science molecular biology laboratory mm -hmm. in cambridge uh, in prostate cancer so that i jumped into with with two feet and, and and loved that and so that's what i've stuck with since and to sort of fast forward um that's the main reason really from being appointed my, my job in in oxford Mm -hmm. uh, being appointed by Freddie Hamdi. Um, I mean, yes, he appointed me partly because of my robotic um, prostatectomy skills and, and those were honed 
during a year's fellowship in Melbourne. But really, it was because of my academic interests, and okay. he wanted to really build the sort of critical mass of of um, people you know, really focused on on you know, hopefully top notch prostate cancer mm. science in Oxford. Um, so yeah, so, so Wednesdays, Thursdays, and, and Friday afternoons, I have a little lab. We do. Okay mainly genomic research and i can tell you a bit about that if you want yeah, yeah you can please. ask another question oh no no i was going to say if if you're still very much lab based actually um yeah so what's your genomic research exactly so we if you so top line is we want to try and define micro metastatic disease in prostate cancer and prostate cancer is fascinating it's almost two or three different diseases um mm -hmm. You know, half of men who live to the age of 75, 80 are going to get prostate cancer. Yeah. That's half of half the population are going to have this cancer. Yeah. And yet the vast majority, you know, 85, 90% of that group that are going to get it um, don't die from it. And mm. indeed, most of them don't even know about it. And so there's this real discrepancy between those who get it and those who know about it and die from it. And that's a big problem because it, it's, and it's why we don't have a screening tool Mm -hmm. uh, a screening program anywhere in the world indeed for, for prostate cancer because the tests that we currently have are too good at diagnosing the prostate cancer we don't need to know about yeah. and not specific enough for the ones the one we do need to, need to know about it okay and it's a real problem because men still die from prostate cancer yeah you know 10 11 thousand of them die every year from prostate cancer in the uk um so there is a real need to get better at this and, and you know we're all attacking this in different ways some are from the MRI perspective, which I think will be so, so important. Some are yeah. doing it from the sort of blood test, um, minimally invasive diagnostics approach. You know, some are doing it from the, the biopsy, which, some, which I'm involved with. Mm -hmm. And others of us, which is what I'm really focusing on, is trying to dig into the molecular genomics of the lethal prostate cancer clone and what okay. makes that stand out from, yeah. the, from cancer that, that is just going to sit there forever and never, never affect a man. And, and we've got a few strategies for doing that. Um, but I believe that the vast majority of cancers that are going to be lethal shed small numbers of, of cells into the lymphatic system and circulation actually very, very early on. So long mm -hmm. before you can detect that with um, cross-sectional imaging, you know, um, MRI, PET scan, CT, mm. um, that, they, that those cells are there. And if we can find those and then trace those back to their, the primary lesions Mm -hmm. of which there are often many in prostate, it's a heterogeneous disease, then mm. we might be able to identify the, the so-called lethal clone at okay. the outset of the diagnostic stage. And, and we've got various quite cool techniques we're using to do that. Okay. Do you find three days a week enough time to carry out all this research? It's, it's a really good question. I, I think it is okay. I think it's a good model for those of us at sort of consultant level of beyond where mm. we have, you know, great teams working for us, um, mm -hmm. delivering the sort of on the ground research. So I think this might help you answer that question. So I, you might know, so Wednesdays is my sort of lab meeting day. We all meet up lunchtime right. on Wednesdays um, before and after that. I'm tend to be having sort of one-to-one -one meetings with my little team. Okay. Um, and then Thursdays is sort of writing day for me. So, you know, reviewing what the team have done, okay. looking at, um, papers that are relevant to my work, writing grants where necessary, mm -hmm. reviewing others' grants. Mm -hmm. And then Fridays actually are sort of MDT days. So it's a sort of half clinical, half research day, but very much the clinical work that I do on Friday supports my research because it's you know, when we find men that we're going to get their 
you know, get prostate tissue on after we've recruited right. into our, our trials for the lab. So it's sort of mix and match day. Mm -hmm. um, it, it would be difficult though, as I think you're hinting, if I was doing a lot of hands-on myself in the mm. lab, then you're right, you need, you need blocks, full-time blocks of time to do that. And so I'd really encourage those who, who might be interested in this to think about going through this kind of ACF program because yeah. it allows you to get the full time to do the PhD, but also protected time. Often we in Oxford do it as a sort of three month or four month block during foundation program. And then yeah. either six months or even nine month block in the, um, through the sort of CT, CST stage okay. as an ACF yeah. to really get into the lab, get the skills, get some preliminary pilot work done to be able to build up a, a research proposal. Okay. Um, and so, so you are right actually you do need sort of almost a solid time to really make that Oops. work if you're if you're at that stage yeah so then did you ever go through a phase where you were mostly just doing surgery because you also obviously have to get the surgical skills up to scratch so did you have maybe yeah, after you, your phd did you just do kind of mostly surgery then or how did you do it uh interestingly you're spot on uh, but but i mean even if but just to be clear yeah the way that the academic foundation program and mm. the ACF programs work, it's 25% roughly That's time true. protected. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's still 75%, which is full-time clinical. And it normally is that way, it's blocks. So you mm. replace one of the four-month academic blocks with research and you replace usually six-month or possibly bundle them together for a nine-month block during the three years of, ACF, of CT training. Mm. Um, uh, but yes, actually I did. I, I went after my PhD, I did go... Um, I sort of went into a sort of full-time registrar at okay. sort of ST4 level effectively mm -hmm. um, for a year and a half because I actually wanted to, and I did it in a district general hospital away from Adam Brooks in Cambridge, just to really nail core urology, get my feet on back under the table. Mm -hmm. I, I carried on doing uh, on calls during my PhD, but there's obviously a limited amount of elective core work that you Mm -hmm. permit yourself to do during a phd because you're concentrating on your research so it was important to get those numbers you know and we, um, as folks on this who might be listening to this may not be totally familiar with this yet but it's i'm sure part of your the student training which is the concept of indicative numbers so there are sort of certain numbers yeah. set of numbers that you have to just go get through it's a sort of it's a balance between competency-based training which i think is probably the way that we are heading towards mm -hmm. but there is also just a quantity required as well to because okay. competency to, to an extent comes with with repetition mm -hmm. and so um it's quite hard to get through those numbers if you're in a tertiary referral unit like for example in my case in Addenbrooke's. so i needed mm -hmm. to go up to peterborough to sort of really get through the the core urology procedures which meant that i could then come back to the big hospital and the sort of referral unit for my clinical lecturer post without having to worry about um you know having to do the indicative numbers for as part of yeah. my core training so you have to be a little bit savvy about okay. making sure that you you identify where the needs are both in your clinical training and also in your research training if, if you're carrying on in that okay great um so then just coming to the last question obviously incision is all about um global surgery so i was wondering mm. what you what you think about global urology yeah, well, we had a little chat about this just a little earlier, didn't we? And I, mm. I confess that I'm not massively knowledge, knowledgeable about global surgery or global urology. Um, we, we do actually have a fantastic global surgery unit, as you well know, in, in Oxford, yeah. um, led by some great colleagues of mine as part of the Nuffield Department of Surgical Sciences, um, where, where I work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, urology also has some 
um, really great links with global surgery. Um, we've got some partners through BAUS, the British Association of Urology, Urological Surgeons, who do some really interesting work with uh, fistula surgery, so reconstructive urology um, due to obstetric catastrophes in, in, in West Africa. But, but I'm not hugely familiar with those. And actually for me, the place where I think global urology has really um, been really important is, is in the research domain. So okay. prostate cancer is a worldwide cancer. Yeah. And yet the vast majority of the, um, the samples that we collect for um, our genomic studies are from uh, you know, Western Europe and North America. Yeah. And actually you may have heard that um, black African and Afro-Caribbean men have a much higher risk of prostate cancer than um, Western European and mm -hmm. North Americans. And that's a risk which uh, is retained whether they live in, in continental Africa or, or in, in, in Western Europe or North, Af North America. And by contrast, um, uh, Far East Asian, so Chinese and Japanese men have a very low risk of prostate cancer, okay. but but they acquire the same risk as Western European men and North American men after one generation or within one generation. So there's two quite contrasting sort of global yeah. um, aspects to the epidemiology of prostate cancer there. One of which implies a very strong genetic trait with yeah. the, the black African men yeah. and afro caribbean men. And, and one implying a very strong environmental um, trait with the Asian men. Right, because they acquire yeah, the same, their, their risk yeah, yeah. normalizes when they move to North America and Western Europe. So we, we must, I think, and, and we are, and we're getting actually some really exciting new pieces of work coming um, from some of the, the big Chinese prostate cancer research groups in, in, in Shanghai. Um, actually, we, we must look at these groups, these cohorts, of course, yeah, um, yeah. in order to understand these traits better, because actually it may well be that it could shortcut some of the difficulties we're finding in, in teasing apart the, uh, the hereditary or um, environmental impacts to yep. prostate cancer risk. Of course. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, thank you. That's all the time we've got uh, for today. But thank you very much for talking to me today. And um, yeah, if anyone wants any further information, please feel free to get in touch with me and I can pass on your questions to Mr. Lamb. Thank you. Yes, I'd, I'd be delighted. Thanks, Martin.